Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, it's Uber IPO time, which means it's time to demand answers about how Uber is ever going to make any money, and when it's going to start treating drivers better, and just what exactly Uber actually wants to be when it grows up. Later on, Katie Binley brings us another interview from the TED conference. This time, she's chatting with TED fellow and researcher Claire Wardle, all about how huge the misinformation problem has gotten online, and what we, as regular people, can do to try and make it better. But first, Last week was Facebook's developer conference, and this week was Google's turn. Its big conference is called Google I.O., and this year was full of lots of big, new, weird ideas about the future of technology. Here to help me break it all down, as always, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Hello. Hello. This was the shortest period of, of actually getting this podcast running that we've had yet, which is a very low bar, but is still very exciting. So I'm very happy we're all here. 17 minutes. I timed it. That's pretty good. I can live with 17 minutes. Next week, we're going to bring it to you in 16 minutes. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Um, okay, so did you guys watch the the Google I.O. conference yesterday? Were you part of the live streamers that Sundar Pichai waved to? No. And I just no. read the breakdown afterwards. Same. I mean, there were some pretty good breakdowns out there. So there were. you were there. On the I was Wall there. Wall Street Journal. There's nothing else other than the Wall Street Journal. That's what I meant, of course. Yeah, we are the only website. That's that's let's be clear. Uh, but no, it was interesting. It's it's funny being there because they have it at the Shoreline Amphitheater, which is this big concert venue. They literally have rock concerts there. It holds 20,000 people or something. Uh, it's big and open, and they have a DJ that goes first who does sort of weird high-tech house music. It's very strange. Uh, but then sitting there in the audience, it's just rapid fire. It's like two hours of just constant new stuff to the point where you forget what they talked about 15 minutes ago because they're onto something wholly new and different. And at various points, it gets extremely nerdy where they're talking about deep AI and machine learning tools. And then at other points, it's you know videos about how technology can help blind people. And then at other points, it's small new features for Android. It's just Chaos and it's sort of deliberate from Google. I think they do so much that this is to be like, look at all of the things that we do. Uh, but I'm curious for you guys. So this is we're recording this on on Wednesday. This is 24 hours after the keynote. Uh, what stuck out to you guys? Like, has anything sort of percolated out of I/O that is interesting to either of you? I think that Google's strategy of being a very good at, at executing on on smartphone and AI and voice that we may someday mark this IO as the moment where they turned the corner and their own hardware became a real competitor to the iPhone and eventually stole a significant amount of its market share. And what I base that on is Siri is still not that great and Google is far and away beating everybody in terms of voice control to the point that, you know, if you saw that one demo, which you did, uh, where they're just issuing a rapid fire string of commands. I mean, any, anybody who has a, a Google Home has experienced this, like the voice recognition on there is significantly better than Alexa and leaps and bounds better than Siri. You know, they are, as you, as you put it, they're put, creating this really great $400 phone and they're putting the world's best voice assistant on it. And 
if they can sell you on their vision of privacy so you can give them enough data to make it really personalized, I think that they could create that voice-based AI interface that we've all been waiting for. And if they really pull it off, uh, it, it's unique to them. It doesn't feel like anybody else is doing that or can do that right now. That assistant demo was astonishing. It felt like something totally different from anything I'd ever seen before. So if Can you, you didn't describe it, yeah, yeah for anybody watch. who didn't get to see it. So normally the way it works with all of these systems is you say you say the wake word, whether it's, you know, hey, Siri or hey, Google or Alexa or whatever. I just launched a bunch of people's devices, including two of mine. Sorry about Alexa, that. Alexa, uh, Alexa. Oh, my God, you're the worst person. You then say something. It takes a beat and then it happens, basically because it's sending all of this stuff to the cloud and processing it there and then sending it back to your phone where things happen. And so there's there's a bunch of steps involved. And basically, one of the things that Google announced is that they've taken this big, giant tool that does all the conversion of your voice into text, into actions, and back into actually doing something on your phone, and has made it small enough that it can all run on your phone. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to send things to the network, it just does it all locally on your phone. And it means it is crazy fast. So they ran this demo where, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch the specifics here, but basically the, this woman on stage did 11 things in a row, you know, checked the weather, sent a text, made reservations, looked something up, uh, tried to find directions, whatever it was, like a bunch of things all in a row with one wake word at the beginning and then just had this sort of long running cross app conversation and everything took virtually no time. I mean, it was it was as fast as you could reasonably expect it to be uh, to just say, you know, get me a lift or what's the weather going to be when I get there? And it just it just happened like beat by beat. And if this stuff actually works the way it did on stage, uh, it's a big deal and it will work on any Android phone. I was really, really impressed by that. Okay, Joanna, what what for you stuck out? Anything? I think the Pixel was a really interesting announcement, I think especially after reading the review and being so impressed with this new $400, right, $399 phone that you were basically saying there all of the core things you would want from that phone, you get in this phone. It finally gives Google that foot in, right? Distribution and price and a really strong set of features, which is Yes, they've always had the features. They didn't have the distribution, and they didn't have the price. Yeah. Now the question is going to be if they're willing to have the billion-dollar marketing budget that it's yeah. going to take to actually help people know these things exist. You know, given the Home Hub Max, the Nest, the Google Home Assistant, are they renaming that too? I don't know. I don't, who knows? All these products are the way they've described it to others. That makes some sense to me is that Google's first-party gadgets, the the phones and. Uh, laptops and tablets and whatever that is now pixel and all the smart home stuff is nest okay. that's the way they oh, describe it and even that doesn't make sense to me but that's the way they seem to be describing it i mean to me this whole voice assistant promise which obviously this is why amazon has been so big at licensing uh not just licensing but just kind of handing out their technology you know like their chips and their software yeah. the whole idea is that this works best if it's everywhere no matter where you are what room your car you just say this Things name and start interacting with it. Alexa, um, do they have a do they have a chance of that? Is it is it a better experience, or do we have to wait for your review if you have this on like every one of your devices? So the the tricky part about it is well, okay. So the upside for Google is that phone is the hack into that, right? Where you're the one thing you have with you all the time is your phone, and the big advantage Google has over. Amazon is that it controls the most popular smartphone platform on earth by a billion miles and that Siri sucks. 
So Google gets a big advantage here by being the one that can be good and be everywhere. And so it can sort of back into, well, I already use Google Assistant, so I might as well buy a Google Home or a Nest Max Home Hub Mini or whatever the hell these things are called, uh, and win that way. Whereas Amazon kind of has to find another way into your life, which is why music and speakers were so useful for it for a while. But every time they show these things, like you can use Google Assistant to get a lift or to you know, make a reservation at a that. restaurant. I see all that stuff and I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. I should do it. And then I never, I never do. do. But that. this was the first time where it was like, okay, if it's actually e- as easy as that makes it look, which I'm not convinced it still is or will be anytime soon. But in the event that you can say, get lift to the office, that's the kind of thing where it starts to feel really useful uh, beyond just weather and music, which are, I agree, the only things mm-hmm. I use them for now. I just wanted to jump in and say that my experience with that robot that is supposed to uh, keep elderly people company, you know, they've done a a tremendous amount of research with actual human beings. And I think they're very sensitive and empathetic designers. And the thing that I realized talking to them is these assistants don't start becoming really useful until they start prompting us Mm -hmm. and knowing when they can do that is actually a social skill. And that is, I think, something that these big companies haven't even tackled yet. But I could picture you mean one like of these. like when they interrupt us, right? They're like, this thing is going to be done in the oven soon or something like that. Right. But but also, I mean, like, eventually they should prompt us to be like, you know, oh, I see you're in the mm-hmm. kitchen making coffee. Right. Like, do you want to hear the weather today? I mean, our devices already give us push alerts, right? So eventually there will be something like that that's auditory. The thing is, as we could all imagine, like that has the potential to be so noxious that it has to be done right or the, we'll just turn it off immediately. That, yeah, that is all the stuff that feels really far away still. That small things like this could be around, but we're, it's going to take a long time before these things actually sort of fit into all of our lives the way they're supposed to. Yeah, so to wrap it up, I'm really excited for Google I.O. 2029. Yeah, exactly. The Pixel 13 is going to be epic. On Friday, the day the show comes out, uh, Uber will become a public company. This is one of the most anticipated, huge tech IPOs ever. And just so you know, in a bit of you know behind the scenes, we're recording this on Wednesday. So if anything crazy happens first thing Friday, we'll get to that next time. Uh, anyway, Uber's about to make a lot of people really rich, but this is also an interesting moment for Uber. So everybody thinks of it as a ride sharing service, but it's really trying to sell investors and the public on a much bigger idea. So this is as good a time as any to take a look at what Uber really is and where it wants to go. Uh, Elliot Brown, our Uber reporter, is here in the office today. So, Elliot. Hi. Thanks appreciate for Appreciate it. So, Uber's about to go public. This is like a big, huge thing we've been talking about forever. Uh, how big is this IPO going to be? Event of the century. Uh, I mean, it is going to be a really big IPO. It will be the second largest after Facebook in terms of tech stocks that are U.S. tech stocks that are IPOing. And things are still moving, but it looks like it's going to be somewhere in the $85 billion valuation. They're raising like eight plus billion dollars. So lots of zeros. And that's slightly lower than they want it to be, but still preposterously huge. It is very, it is a very large number, objectively. It is uh, (laughs) a very much lower number than the initial one floated out there 
by whisperers, which was as high as 120 billion, and then it became as high as 100 billion, and then as high as 90 billion. And so now we're into the mid 80s, it looks like. So, but then the other thing that's happening at the exact same time is Uber absolutely cannot make one dollar of money. They just they, they they are losing money faster than just about anything I've ever seen. So they actually this is a very inconvenient timing for them. They actually had been sort of having charts go in the right direction as of a year ago. Everything losses were coming down, revenue was going up, and you could sort of see a graph that if you continued the line, it would cross into profitable. Uh, <laughs> if you continue at, the line for several it, centuries. Yeah, it, it might have taken a while, but uh, it, it, it sort of looked plausible. Uh, now they've just been hit over the past year by this total onslaught of competition around the globe and are getting into these fair wars and there's really irrational behavior going on uh, and same within meal delivery. And so then their losses have started to balloon again. So it, it, the, the graph literally looks like an upside or a frowny face where <laughs> it, it had been going uh, up and now it's down again. Can you just like summarize what the pitch is then for, for Wall Street? What, it, what yes. is Khazra Shahi? Did I say it right? I think so. That's pretty good. Because it's way bigger than just yeah. get rides from one place to a different place. In venture capital land, they sort of call this pitch like, it's all about the TAM, meaning total addressable market, meaning what is, are, is the combined spending on transportation? And uh, that can be us. So it, it, the the pitch is very futuristic. It's It's sort of everyone is going to be getting rid of personal car ownership. Everyone will have drivers uh, who lease their cars for, from some larger fleet, and eventually robo-taxis will take over those drivers, and everyone will, instead of getting takeout, will have an Uber Eats driver or a DoorDash driver come drop off their food at their house, schedule trips on trains on the Uber app. So it's, it's, it's sort of Uber at the center of everything. And the thinking is, well, if we just get a, like, a small percentage of that, that is a really big company. So the idea is let's total all transportation markets on the planet of all kinds of transportation and then raise money based on the idea that we could eat all of it. In their defense, have a smaller number that I think limits okay. to just 63 countries. Oh, sure. So that's, to summarize, they think we're going to go places in the future and Uber can be involved. Correct. And they'll take a slice <laughs> and be able to make it on that. So, OK. So then, I mean, it does seem like in this in this long term future like if uber gets its way uber has this vision of something that basically seems like the the app to end all apps yeah for for, for getting around you know in, in that but even sense, for like delivery and and ordering food and goods and it's like it's it's a shopping app but also a transportation app but also like it's it wants to be the logistics company for the internet which sounds fine, but ridiculous. <laughs> In the current iteration, it has a bunch of different types of businesses. Like they, they run their own scooters and bikes now, which is actually really different from drivers, where you're you're sort of summoning a driver that uh, uses their own car. But in this, they have to pick up these scooters and bikes every day, and then they have these uh, a freight booking service for. It, it's basically a brokerage for trucks, where apparently a lot of guys sit in a room and call up truckers uh, and say, hey, do you want to move this from <laughs> Kalamazoo to, to Nashville? Uh, and and that it, it, there's not too many obvious synergies there. So it's a lot of things in a lot of different areas. Uh, and I think there's a big question of how it'll all actually fit together. Okay. And the, but the, the long run, the goal is like their, their claim is, well, you know, yeah, science the, the 
out of it, so to speak. They want to be the, the the kings of transportation for everything, and and they even say, you know, we want to be part of public transit. They're a little squishy about what what they want to do. Do they want to actually like have surge pricing on public transit? The CEO once sort of alluded to that. Uh, who knows? But they want you to use their app for everything. Is this going to work? Like, is is Uber going to get? It seems like part of what it wants now is to get. Big enough to that a Travis Kalanick finally gets to be a, a billionaire. Uh, well, he he ran the company happen. terribly, but is about to make a whole bunch of money. It seems like, but also to give himself some sort of I don't know legitimacy and staying power. It feels like there's a thing that happens when you go public where it's like we're we're around for the long haul now. And is that like is is that real for Uber now? Does it get to keep losing money like this? So you know, there's one question of, does ride-hailing as a business make sense? And a lot of people think that if you actually raise the fares, then uh, the profit can actually start to spit out at some point, which is kind of funny that we're asking that question 10 years in, but that you know, that's another question. <laughs> like, what if we raised prices? Yeah. <laughs> what an idea. Does this business even work fundamentally? <laughs> and you have all of these competitors around the globe that every time it seems like one is extinguished in one area, another one pops up. So, okay, so you do this thing where you're, you're basically just chasing venture capital subsidized lunches all over San Francisco. I would argue they are ch- chasing me. That, that's fair. They're chasing you with their venture capital subsidized lunches. Uh, and so you were using, what is it now, Ritual? You were on MealPal before, and now there's a new one. There's some breaking news magic. that this morning I got a 40% offer, uh, off offer from MealPal. So. <laughs> You're back know. on MealPal. What do you do? You go okay, to so lunch anyway. with venture capitalists and you bring no. a, a subscription meal? There's subscription lunch apps yeah. on the internet that work in San Francisco. But anyway, the point of this question. And you, and you get your lunch from them. Elliot, this is yeah. I eat subsidized lunch available to any consumer who wants to find apps that are sponsored by venture oh, capital. I like this story way better. I, I feel like I hear our standards people weighing in right now. Yeah, I liked the idea <laughs> of you going voice. to lunch with VCs and you brought your own meal <laughs> Every plan day. to that. <laughs> You're Tupperware. Like but so what I wonder is, is that just where we go now? Like, is that is that just the future of ride hailing where you're just going to chase the cheapest fare by somebody who just raised a bunch of money and can afford to give you a great deal and we just bounce around forever? That is 100% what the past and present of ride hailing are is because these companies are very much subsidized. Yeah, like every two weeks I get a thing from Lyft that's like, here's $30. Yeah. Cool, thank you. Yeah, the big question among the Wall Street crowd and sort of expectation is that they love to call it boring things. The economics will rationalize (laughs) and... What we'll stop they, doing dumb stuff. <laughs> what they mean by that is that, yes, a decade into this industry, that they would charge what it costs and stop subsidizing each other just to steal market share from each other. <laughs> I have one more burning question. You're using all these meal things. Do you use Uber Eats? I have yet to use Uber Eats. Same. I've tried to figure it out. But Has anyone that's used That's crazy. Eats? You cover Uber. You haven't used Has Uber Eats. Has anyone here used Uber Eats? <laughs> I have used Uber Eats. This is Has a big any, discussion. You should admit that our, on this podcast. Have any of our listeners ever used Uber Eats? Please Yeah, I've used Uber Eats. He so said Uber defiantly. Eats is actually, it's seen like enormous growth. The problem is that it, it doesn't make a ton of money right now is because it's so competitive. Uh, I thought they, the, like they're just that. losing money on that, like they're losing Sorry. money on everything they else. They make a ton like of the revenue. Most... <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. It, it, not profitable money. Unprofitable money type. Yeah. But it, which is amazing because you would think that stuff, like I'm, I'm paying you know $28 for a $17 pizza, and you would think at some point- Someone's they would have figured out yeah. right something. People don't mind paying twenty dollars for McDonald's, right? Because the food was less, and they're like, "Okay, I'm going to pay for 
a little bit more on delivery because the food was so cheap. Then it's like, then you get into the more expensive food and like, that doesn't make any sense to get that through Uber Eats. I'll get it through a different delivery service or I'll, you know what, I'll just get up and I'll go get that food. What an idea. But in the, you don't own a car. You have to take an Uber to get it. <laughs> you take a scooter. <laughs> Super, it's, it's rationalized. The Uber scooter, which loses Uber, you know, 100 to $300 every time they buy it. But it's so fun. Before we get to Katie Binley and Claire Wardle, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned. Some weird thing we discovered that may or may not have anything to do with a story. Joanna, this week is your turn. People in the technology industry know the term SaaS, software as a service, and it's basically any software that is now a service and it's always updating and you pay for. So Google Drive, Microsoft Office, anything, basically every software or thing we use as a web app or as an app is SaaS. And there's CAS, which is content as a service, Netflix, Hulu, Apple News Plus, The Wall Street Journal. So I wrote this week about subscriptions. And I don't think I came up with this term because I did Google it and some people have used it in like presentations. But I've come up with EAS. Ass. What? Everything as a service. And so this is the world we're going to where everything around us connects and comes with a service. So oh, this week I learned the word yes. I feel like we're going to get the explicit tag on this podcast now. Just, just you guys, for, I, I mean, feel it's like this is like in, in that show where he tries to introduce the concept of an an alribist. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I've come up with. You guys can join me in my my mission to make yes a thing. But mm. everything Wait, so is now a service, and it's the idea that, that idea. it is the idea that everything around us is connected or comes with a service. And truth is, is that you, this was an amazing thing. I wrote this column about subscriptions and how we're bombarded by subscriptions, and I honestly could not come up with a thing that doesn't have a subscription. Like you should just at, when you're listening to this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, on your commute, at home, in the bathroom, wherever you love to listen to our lovely voices look around there is you look at some object there is a service for it there is probably a subscription for it mostly it could come from amazon because you can order everything on a recurring basis and be charged on a recurring basis for your toilet paper for your keyboards you could order keyboards to show up every month probably um but yeah the point of my my column was really about how this is happening and how we have to keep track of all these services because we sign up for free trials right and left just because we want to try something. And then we realize three years later that we're being still being charged $9.99 a month for it, $5.99 a month for it. And there's going to be more and more of these services because yes. Because yes. Because yes. I'm going to make, we're going to make t-shirts. That's going to be our so first podcast. So this is like merch. the exact opposite of George Bush Jr.'s ownership society. I Correct. just feel like we, we shouldn't gloss in over the society. enormous uh, cultural implications. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one of the lines I have in my piece is like, welcome to the subscription economy where like everything is a subscription. Every single thing is billing you monthly or yearly. And, and also every single thing can be switched off at a moment's notice. Yeah, I mean, that's actually the funny thing. Like one of the things we covered or I, I, one of the things I put in the article is a photo of a photo, photos of a couple of products now that come with subscription. So your workout bike from Peloton, your toothbrush from um, Quip comes with you can get it as a subscription, uh, a pair of headphones. I'm forgetting the new Neurophone, Neurophones. 
David, do you know the company? I think it was Neurophone. I think yeah. you're right, yeah. Um, they come with a subscription now, so you can get your headphone. You pay $9 a month, and your headphones, you're paying for them. If you don't want to use them, you can just send them back. If you don't want to keep paying, you can send them back. Um, but there was like a line that's like, your service will be turned off for your headphones. But it's like, will your headphones still work? You can still plug them in. Um, but you, you, know, you presumably would send them back at the end of this subscription service. Or not. You just run away, and then that's their problem, not yours. Yeah. I mean, same with your toothbrush, right? Your toothbrush does come with a – it's five – It's five. I think it's $5 for every every three months you get charged $5, and every three months they'll send you a new toothbrush head, and if you pay even more, you'll get toothpaste. But if you don't pay that, what if you just keep using the same toothbrush head for the rest of your life? If Quip wants my toothbrush back – they can they can come pry it from my cold dead hands. That's all I have to say about that. You, let's all sign up and send it back to them. <laughs> oh, my free trial's over. Here's my toothbrush. Yeah, here's my toothbrush back. Oh, did I clean it? No, I, I, I just put it in a loose envelope. It. Here's my toothbrush. So uh, yeah. all right, we sh- we should move on. Thank you for that, Joanna. Yes, everyone. Yes. Uh, coming up in just a second, Katie Binley and Claire Wardle dig into the problem of misinformation online and what. If anything, we can actually do to make it better. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back. Katie Binley's here. Hi, Katie. Hi. So I dragged you in here because there's so much in this interview that you're about to do that I want to like set the stage a little bit. There's, it's dense, right? It's dense. It was it was hard to cut it down at all. So we're going to go through some of the like basic stuff before we just dive into the middle. Cool. So first of all, who who is Claire Wardle and and why did you end up talking to her at TED? So she is a researcher who studies mis and disinformation online and how it spreads. And she also is uh, part of a nonprofit called First Draft. She's the, actually the co-founder and leader of First Draft, and it focuses on research and practices to address mis- and disinformation. And so what was her talk about at TED? Uh, I mean, much of it was about this idea of, I mean, we have these issues with mis- and disinformation online and that um, part of what could help address it would be if people, like average users, were sort of part of the solution and were like donating their social data so that, you know, researchers and tech companies could get a better idea of um, how information is spreading and how to stop it from spreading. Okay. And I got the sense she has... uh thought about this a lot and is like actively angry at the situation as it exists. She was not somebody Let's who felt... Let's go frustrated. Okay. And, um, but yeah, I mean, with some of the stuff she talked about, like, it is scary. One of the things that I feel like she talked a bunch about that is hard to do is describe what this stuff actually looks like on the internet. Like, and, and that was one thing you guys talked about sort of early and, and in pieces, and it seems like she brought it up in her in her TED Talk, too. Like, what's help frame that for for us for what we're about to listen to like what what does this stuff look like 
Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I think a lot of us who maybe are using WhatsApp, it's like, oh, we're on a group chat thread with our friends, like planning dinner or whatever. But that for much of the world, this is like such a different form of communication where it might be where they're getting news. It might be where they're getting, um, you know, where they're getting like audio recordings that have been manipulated or they're sharing screenshots of, um, you know, an article or a uh, you know, some kind of post that has content that's just not true. Um, and so, you know, part of what Claire and I talked about was, um, you know, there's sort of this people kind of have been focused on, OK, you know, political misinformation in our Facebook news feeds. But there's this, you know, sort of less uh, understood and less tracked um, spread of misinformation through private channels. Uh, and a lot of it can be related to like health information and stuff that's, you know, fairly scary to be spreading around. Mm-hmm. So, And with that in mind, set up the, the moment we're about to jump into this interview. You you asked about Facebook, and, and that was one of the things you, you went in, I know, no, wanting to talk about. It's like how this stuff is changing as some of the platforms claim they're changing. So like what's sort of tee up your, your first question for her? Here. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we all, we talked about this on one of our earlier podcasts about like Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, several thousand word blog post about, you know, the the shift in the in the model toward private channels and privacy, privacy, privacy. But, um, you know, one of the side effect, potential side effects of that is that it's going to be harder to root out, um, you know, content that is misleading, that's like going to, you know, inflame people's emotions, that's, you know, have potential to have them take actions that, uh, you know, may be misguided because it's based off stuff that's just possibly flat out not true. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, I, I was curious from her perspective, like, where does she, what does she view, um, you know, what, what does she see happening with this as as these as we shift this focus to to more private channels and how what's that going to do to like the spread of all this stuff? There you go. I have quite a lot of thoughts about this, mostly because we've done so much work globally. The conversation about mis and disinformation in the US has been primarily about the Facebook newsfeed and it's been primarily about political disinformation, but actually globally. And I've been saying for a couple of years, it's much more about these closed messaging spaces and not just political disinformation, like health misinformation is a real challenge. And so in places like Brazil and Nigeria, where we recently ran election projects, you see populations where WhatsApp is absolutely their number one source for all information um, because you have spaces that actually the it doesn't cost it doesn't use up data so they have this these plans like zero basic so in brazil you can use whatsapp and no data gets used so very high usage now it's important that we have encrypted spaces but surprise surprise in these spaces misinformation tends to move at speed and the problem is is that journalists and fact checkers and researchers don't have any knowledge of what's circulating in these spaces so there's no way to come back and actually say, no, this is a rumor. Now, some people argue, well, you know, 15 years ago, Claire, before social networks, it was all the equivalent of encrypted spaces. We were all round our dinner tables and journalists didn't come to our dinner tables and know what rumors we were circulating. But the problem with technology is, yes, it's the same, but it's just supercharged. And so watching some of these rumors travel at speed through WhatsApp, we had a central tip line in Brazil. We received 250,000 messages from Brazilians saying, I've seen this on WhatsApp. Is it true or not? 
not. And that was the only way that we could know what people were seeing. And so we would see these messages and then report out and say, no, this is a false. No, Bolsonaro didn't do this. No, you know, this is this is actually from 2017. Don't believe it. But only from the public sending us those tips did we know what was happening. So I worry even in the US context, there's not enough people thinking about these encrypted spaces and what that will mean. And so I worry that we're not prepared to understand all of that. Can you talk a little bit about what it like what it looks like? I mean, I'm in, you know, my WhatsApp thread is like a group of women I went to college with and there's 10 of us in a group and it's just, you know, we just send kind of texts back and forth. But yeah. how are how are people using WhatsApp in other parts of the world and what does the misinformation look like? Yeah. So in places like Brazil, where most news outlets have paywalls and many people can't afford necessarily to to find information that way, then WhatsApp becomes their central place for all information needs. So they have groups with their friends where they talk about going out, but they also have groups where people share screenshots of articles or images or so a lot of this and actually audio files so during our work in Brazil lots of people were sending us audio files saying is this true is this something that Bolsonaro talked about so again in the US we're kind of obsessed with deep fakes and what are we going to do when artificial intelligence creates all these sophisticated manipulations I'm more worried about some guy with a smartphone in Brazil creating a kind of a made-up audio message because our ears are very trusting it's very hard to verify our own ears so I think a America is not prepared and Western Europe for the ways that encrypted messaging spaces can be used for circulating information, not just, oh, I'll see you at the restaurant tonight, yeah. which is how we tend to use it here. Yeah. And we're, I, we're definitely used to dialogue around sort of the, the way that people can be manipulated when it comes to political content. What are the other subject matters that maybe aren't being focused on as much that would be kind of like ripe for sort of shaping, reshaping people's thoughts or, you know, spreading misleading content. Yeah. So, I mean, there has been quite a lot of debate over the last six weeks in the US around vaccinations and misinformation to do with vaccinations. And we just carried out a study in 12 countries asking people if they searched for vaccine vaccine information, what would they see on the different platforms and could they send us their screenshots and then we anonymize them. And it's pretty shocking to see the kind of a lot of it is memes and visuals that are telling you like vaccines kill, don't trust vaccines. And a lot of it is very emotional. Like I vaccinated my child and here's my personal story. And then, you know, in places like Africa, uh, really troubling health misinformation there. Like, you know, if, if your child's got conjunctivitis, put battery acid in their eyes. I mean, it's at a level you can't quite believe. And actually in my talk yesterday, I showed an example of a banana with red across in the center and then rumors saying, oh, these bananas have been injected with blood contaminated with the HIV virus. I mean, you kind of want to dismiss it, but these rumors just keep going. Um, and a lot of it is around health rumors that impact on people's ideas about their own safety. What are the motivations behind the people who start these things? Like it's it's sort of much more straightforward, I think, when you've got something to do with politics. OK, there's an end. We want to drive you to vote a certain way when it comes to health misinformation and, and other subject areas. What's what's the why did they do it in the first place? So unfortunately, a lot of this is actually around making money. So because people effectively I mean, they're, they're fearful of their own safety. So if if you hear, well, here's a way that you can cure cancer. Here's a way that you can make sure that you'll stay safe. Then you, people get a lot of clicks. So there is that element of that. Some of the darker stuff, I don't, I don't really understand. I can't imagine the motivation for people creating the co- content other than let's see what's possible or maybe it starts as a joke. But, you know, the three main reasons that we see people creating this content is a political. It's about either foreign or domestic attempts to, you know, change elections. The second is financial 
financial. And the third is this kind of social psychological, like what can I do to cause harm? And I find that the hardest to understand. Yeah. Um, What is your take about what the tech companies are doing to sort of stem the tide of this? Do you feel they're doing enough? Do you think the tech companies have enough of an incentive to fix this? So, of course, this is the big challenge, which is what makes effective disinformation content that's emotional. What makes people click? Emotional content. What makes the money? People clicking. So, you know, that is ultimately the conundrum here is that they're going to have to make decisions to say for the health of democracy, for the health of our global citizenry, we need to make stronger decisions and make sure that we don't emphasize emotional content. But that's going to affect the bottom line. If we get to a point where citizens start walking away from these platforms because they believe they're harming them, then that will affect the bottom line. But at the moment, because all of our data is locked into these platforms, even if people are frustrated at Facebook, the network effect means that they can't walk away. So, you know, Mark Because they need Instagram. Yeah, they need Instagram. (laughs) And there's no alternative to Instagram where all their friends would also be. So Mark Zuckerberg in that editorial talked about data portability. So if we can come up with a, a solution that people can move their data around and they have different options, then maybe that will happen. But right now, nothing's going to happen until citizens say we're not happy and we don't have enough of that global movement yet. Are there strong distinctions between the types of mis and disinformation that you see across different platforms? Like Has your research shown anything interesting about what thrives on Instagram versus, say, what thrives on YouTube? So one thing I would say, um, many people working in these spaces are focused on text because of natural language processing. We've got better technologies for assessing text. The real problem is visuals and images and memes. So people and, you know, researchers tend to dismiss memes you know, they're seemed as frivolous and what harm can they do? But the reason that memes are powerful and memes are an image and they often have block text over the top. And the reason that they're powerful is that there's, there's often a nod or a wink to something else, to culture. And so in order to understand why a meme is funny or like is poking fun at something, you have to understand the wider context. So if you go onto Instagram and you search for vaccines, it is just shocking how much content is there and it's all visual. So Instagram has got away with a lot of these conversations. They are often not discussed, but they are such a powerful vehicle of disinformation globally. And I don't. it's because people don't take images seriously. YouTube tends to be much more about conspiracies and you see people with these pretty long YouTube like podcasts or videos and there's a lot more conspiracy content on YouTube. Um, Twitter, you see hashtags trending, you see more automation. I am less convinced of the power of Twitter to have the same impacts because the types of people who use Twitter are actually, it's not as representative. You have a a lot fewer people using Twitter, particularly globally. Um, And Facebook, Facebook has a bit of everything. (laughs) (laughs) A melange of misinformation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, All right, so you have some thoughts on what everyone could do to help fix this problem. You want to tell us more about those? Yeah. So I think a lot of the conversation has been focused on what can the tech companies do or increasingly what can governments do? And I actually think that neither of those sectors are, neither of them can do it themselves. Um, And I actually am frustrated that the public, the many, many people who use these platforms are not part of these conversations at all. And so, you know, a company like WhatsApp, which has 1.5 billion users globally, has the last time I talked to them was about one member of staff outside Menlo Park. 
you know, so no staff in Brazil, one member of staff in India, yet it's the go-to destination for so many people. So when I think about solutions, I think about, is there a way that we can bring these users of these platforms, the customers essentially, into these conversations? So either can we build a platform that allow users to have a say, which might be helping provide insights around difficult content moderation decisions? So rather than faceless content moderators doing this, paid peanuts in the Philippines, what would it look like if more of us could have a say in some of those decisions? Or simply feedback. Like if Google is going to change the way they do like knowledge boxes at the top of Google search, could we as users have some say and give some feedback about, well, actually in my country, that doesn't make sense for these reasons. So I would love to see that happen. Um, so I think just putting more power with the citizens. And one idea um, a few people are talking about now is the idea of citizens donating their social data to science. So we just ran this survey and we asked people in 12 countries to take screenshots on their phones and to send them back to us. There is nothing more powerful than seeing what do people see in Nigeria versus the Philippines versus Australia if you actually see the results. Um, and it's difficult to make sense of and to analyze, but the data is so rich. Well, the, da- the platforms have that data, but they don't want to give it to anybody. And I understand they say, oh, we've got, so, you know, we've got privacy concerns. But right now, people are donating their social data to Facebook. Like, you know, could they donate it. it to researchers who have ethical codes and, you know, anonymity is built into a system and all of those things? It kind of sounds ambitious, but honestly, at the level we're at now... We can't keep talking about it, tinkering around the edges. You know, I work with a small nonprofit. Like, we're not going to solve the problem. So we really need these big, ambitious movements. And I think the power here, if we want to put pressure on the platforms, it's the users. You know, 1.5 billion users on WhatsApp, 2.3 billion users on Facebook. We're not small in terms of, I think, what we could achieve if we actually said, we're kind of done with this. And, you know, is there a way that we could be part of these conversations? Can you envision a scenario in which you know, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are aiding you in this research? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Facebook has been talking for a year about helping uh, researchers get access to this in a program called Social Science One, but it's been a year and nothing has come from it. But I think the other point is all these companies are working in silo. They They connect around kind of child sexual abuse imagery. But right now, Facebook works with fact checkers around the world to debunk videos and images and claims. And when the fact checkers do it, it goes back, but only helps Facebook. Mm. Like if these fact checkers are doing it, that same information should be available to Pinterest and to Reddit and to Google. Like it shouldn't be locked into a database that Facebook owns. So on these topics, we should be putting pressure on them to say, not only should be working with researchers, but you should also be working side by side. Like it's crazy that you should be competing about this. And I recently, it was at an event and a guy from one of the, the telephone companies said, you know, it reminds me of car safety situations. We don't compete about who's got the best seatbelt. We all know that we need to have the same brilliant seatbelts. And he just said, I think there's certain things that we should just all say, we shouldn't be competing about who's got the best fact-checking project. We should be working together. Who does have the best fact-checking project? Well, right now, F- Facebook is has taken it most seriously and is working with the most fact-checkers, but then they own the database. So that just doesn't make sense to me. So you want to spread the truth, love? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that is our show. Thanks to Claire, Katie, Elliot, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon. This message comes from Viking 
committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.